This is Jen Kelly from In Black and White here to ask a favour. If you enjoy this podcast, there's one easy way you can help us get the word out to more listeners. Simply give a rating for this podcast and even better, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles and photos to this podcast. If you like this podcast and want to support it, click on heraldsun.com.au forward slash I-B-A-W to go to the In Black and White page and click on any article to find out how to subscribe. They used to have a whole, whole gangs of these guys that worked together and they used to have to try and find somebody that they felt was easy prey. They'd wait where the ships were coming in to get the passengers coming off the ships. And they used to actually stalk them for a couple of days and they gradually befriend them. Little did the intended victim know that his new friend was working with Smith Brown. Smith Brown would win seven in a row and the money would be gone. The intended victim then would be in shock, of course. Smith Brown would pick up his hat, which was full of money, put it on his head and walk out. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Today we return for episode two in our five-part series called Snake Oil and Swindle, Old Melbourne's Craftiest Conman. We're speaking again with historian Michael Shelford, the creator and guide for Melbourne historical crime tours. Today we're talking about conman Smith Brown, who arrived in Tasmania as a convict in the 1840s. After his release, he moved to Melbourne and became one of Australia's first conmen. He was once described as a venerable-looking gentleman dressed in a tall silk hat and frock coat and with a silvery beard to the bottom of his vest. His career spanned 40 years and by the end, he was considered the leader of conmen in Australia. Michael Shelford considers Smith Brown to have been one of Australia's cleverest practitioners at the art of fleecing people. Welcome back again, Michael. Thanks, Jen. Good to see you again. So we're talking today about Smith Brown and you describe him as one of Australia's very first con men, don't you? Yeah, he was. And um, he was one of the, the cleverest practitioners of the art. He had a lengthy career spanning over 40 years. And, and we're talking from quite early days for Australia. So we're, we're talking from around about 1850 um, right through until the late 1890s. So going back to the beginning of his story, he came to Australia as a convict. What was his crime? Thievery, um, stealing from the person, when he was actually shipped over to Australia. So he was born um, in 1820. He was sent over here when he was 22 years of age, um, when he was sent over from northern England. He was actually described by on his um, prison record as being um, a companion of thieves, and he didn't have a very good record while he was a convict either. So he was released in 1850 after eight years. When did he first hit trouble with the law here? It seems to me that between when he was released in 1850 and when he first got into trouble in 1860, he was known as a professional card player. So I'm, I'm guessing that in those days people get away with a little bit more in the early days of um, the colonies than they could 
um, by the time he gets into trouble by 1860. But in 1860, he was charged with swindling somebody with a game of cards. And the, the game of cards was just a, a simple uh, red or black. So you'd split the pack, shuffle the pack, split the pack, and people would bet with the first card up is going to be a black or a red. But the, the police believed that there was a, a ridge on the, they were manufactured so that he could actually feel which was which. So it was, it was a swindle. And um, by 1862, he was dis- actually described as the leader in the card-sharping games of uh, gangs of Victoria. So card a card-sharp is what we might call a card-shark today. Same kind of thing. And what were his specialties as, as a card-sharp? Well, um, when, when we actually get through a little bit further, so we get through to the 1884 Melbourne Cup, the detectives decided, the, the problem for the detectives and the police in Melbourne, and I, I suppose the people who decided to visit Melbourne to go to the Melbourne Cup, was that in those days, all of these gangs of the swindlers, the con men, used to follow the crowds. So they, they'd turn up in town and they'd hope that people tourists would be turning up and they were the easiest picks, they were the easiest people to actually fool. And they knew, eve of the 1884 Melbourne Cup, the whole place is going to be full of these swindlers, these con men, and the, the crowds are going to be in a, a bit of trouble and a lot of people will lose their money. The police decided at the last minute that they were going to do a roundup of all the most notorious con men in Melbourne. So they arrested them en masse. And the, the first one they actually went for was Smith Brown. And he was described by Detective Nixon during that arrest as being a master of the padlock trick, the matchbox trick, and all the spieling devices. Well, they all sound pretty fascinating. I'd love it if you could take us through those one at a time. What was the padlock trick, for example? Well, the padlock trick, the matchbox trick, and the dog collar trick all used a very similar premise. And they're all items that have been manufactured to be a, a trick. They're all give you an idea of how it used to work. So let's say it's the matchbox trick or the padlock trick. A person from out of town is sitting in a bar by themselves. Somebody walks in and actually puts down a particular item on their table, a a matchbox, a padlock, a dog collar, and says, I just can't get this thing open. It's impossible to open. Then they make an excuse to go outside and the person tries opening and it opens quite easily. And the whole premise behind the trick is to try and get them to gamble on whether or not it could be opened or not. Each of those items have um, been manufactured to have a, a switch which you can surreptitiously flick, which makes them impossible to open. So that's the, the way they used to do it. The way that people were set up for it was quite interesting because they used to have a whole, whole gangs of these guys that worked together and they used to have to try and find somebody that they felt was easy prey. And usually it was somebody from the country. So they used to go and um, hang around the places where country visitors were most likely to go. So the, the, the museum, for example, the art gallery, they'd wait outside the country platform um, at Flinders Street Station. They'd wait where the ships were coming in to get the passengers coming off the ships. And they used to actually stalk them for a couple of days and they gradually befriend them. They'd accidentally bump into them, work out where they were from. Oh, that's very interesting. I'm also visiting Melbourne from the country too. I've been here for a week. I could show you around. And they actually gradually build confidence with them. And then let's say on the third day, they say, let's pop into this hotel for a bit of a drink. They're sitting down for a drink. And that's when the person walks in with the matchbox, with the padlock or with the dog collar. And at that point of time, when the person 
places that item down on their table and says, no one knows how to open this. I'm the only person in the world that can open it. They walk outside under some excuse, some premise, and their new friend who's part of the gang tries to open it, opens it very easily, passes it over to the visitor from the country, says, you try it, opens it very easily, and then says, you know what, I reckon we could make some money out of this. When he comes back in, let's bet him that we can open it um, and we'll make some money out of him because he doesn't realise we can open it. The guy comes back in, accepts the bet, flicks the switch, and they lose the bet. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. And what did the police mean when they described Smith as being a master of spieling devices? What did spieling devices mean? So a a spieler was just another term for that era for a con man. And they used to also use the term magsman or magsman. And they used to also use the term card sharp or a sharper. They all meant pretty much the same thing, just people who made, made money off people by trick. And so did police start to warn the public about these tricks if they were reasonably common and therefore did it become harder for people like Smith-Brown to find people to con? Yeah, so the, the police did and also, of course, there was always newspaper articles about somebody who'd been taken down by a con man. So it, it became so much more difficult to to actually be able to fool somebody. So the the ways that they went around it had to become more creative and more clever. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an idea of some of the methods that people used to use for those kind of things. So I've, I've already mentioned um, how um, somebody would actually be followed around and um, um, not known to, unbeknownst to them and befriended in the lead up to the con. So that'd be one member of the gang. There was a, a very clever trick which used to be called the heart-shaped box trick. And this is where Smith Brown really came into his own because he was one of the main proponents of that particular trick. So let's say that um, the new guy in town gets befriended by a member of the gang. They um, build trust. They've Let's go for a bit of a tour around Melbourne. They sit down in a local park. They're sitting there in the park, having a chat, enjoying each other's company, new friendship. And um, an elderly man... Smith Brown walks past with a big long wispy beard, um, a big um, silk top hat, and um, and dressed up to the nines, looking very wealthy. And he walks past and he drops something. The new friend, the member of the gang, walks over and picks it up, and it's this beautiful wooden heart-shaped box. And he says, "Would you look at that? I've never seen the likes of it in my whole life." And they're both marvelling at it. And Smith Brown walks back and he says, "You wouldn't have seen something." Would you? I I dropped something um, just walking past here earlier. The new friend, the gang member, then says, oh, it wouldn't be this, would it? And shows him the heart-shaped box and he goes, oh, I'm so thankful you wouldn't believe it, that that it's valueless to anyone else, but to me, I wouldn't lose it for a thousand pounds. How can I thank you? He pulls out a great big wad of cash, so a big bundle of cash, something that the police would describe later has paper on the inside with just a couple of notes around the outside to make it look like it's a huge amount of money when it's not. And he'd say, I happen to be a very wealthy man. And 
what I plan to do is to actually um, reward you for being so honest and giving me back my most treasured item. And then they'd say, well, what, why is it so treasured? And he'd open up the box and inside there would be a photograph of a female. And that's where the story would vary. Um, sometimes the story, sometimes the most outlandish story seemed to be the most believable to people. So the, the story often used to be uh, an uncle in Fiji gave it to them. Another one was a, um, a Fijian king and that he'd been in Fiji, the Fijian king's daughter had been drowning, he dived into the ocean, he'd saved her, and um, he'd given him that box as a reward with her photograph inside, but he'd also given a tremendous amount of money, and suddenly he was wealthy when he hadn't been wealthy, but the only stipulation given by the Fijian king was that he was supposed to be generous with the money that he'd received as the gift for saving the daughter, and whenever he came across somebody who proved that they were living a good life and, um, and saving money, he would reward them with more money. And then he'd say, so I need you, in order to re- receive this reward, what I need you to do is to prove to me that you're actually good with money and you've been saving money and that you have money. And so I, what I want you to do is I want you to go and get all the money you got We'll meet up at the hotel later. Now, what, however much money you bring along, I'm going to match it as a gift just to demonstrate how thankful I am and to actually, actually fulfil the wishes of the person who was my benefactor. So both of them would run off to the bank. One of them is the con man's assistant, of course, and one of them is the, the new friend from the country. They come back with all the money they had. And that's where whatever con um, they decided to put into operation would work because then the person was there with all their money and ready to be picked. <laughs> so there was there was a couple of different types of tricks that they would use on them then. So from that point of time, you've got the, the intended victim who's there with their money. So all you have to do then is to enact whatever the swindle you want to bring into action. The one that Smith Brown seemed to like the best was a game called the nine pieces of paper trick. And what did it actually say? He'd say, you might have brought this amount of money along, but I'd actually like to give you more than that in reward. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to increase that. And he'd actually say, I'm feeling so generous that I'm going to set up a game in which you cannot lose. And we'll just do a small bet and we'll go from there. The game would be all about the toss of a coin. Now, it was called the nine pieces of paper trick because he would actually get a sheet of paper and he'd tear it into nine pieces and he would put six pieces of paper on the intended victim's side and three pieces of paper on his own side. He would then say, I believe that I can actually pick the toss of a coin six times out of nine. If I don't, you get all the money. (laughs) So that, this is how it's all set up. So he's got two to one chance of winning. So who's not going to take that? So he thinks this guy actually just wants to give me money and wants, doesn't want to feel bad about it. The deal would be that he, the victim, the intended victim, would be in charge of the toss of the coin. His, the guy who'd befriended him would be next to him and together they would make sure that it was a fair toss. Smith Brown would actually get up out of his chair while the toss was being done and face the wall so he couldn't see... Um, whether it was a head or a tail that came up after the toss. Then they'd put a mug over the top of it so he couldn't see. And then he'd turn around and make his guess. But little did the intended victim know that his new friend was working with Smith Brown and was giving him a signal as to whether it was a head or a tail. 
And what they'd usually do is they'd allow the intended victim to to lose the to, sorry to win the first two tosses. So it's come down to a point where it's a that Smith Brown would have to win six times, and he only needed to win once. So a, a very much increased chance. But all of a sudden, Smith Brown would win seven in a row, and the money would be gone. The intended victim then would be in shock, of course. Smith Brown would pick up his hat, which was full of money, put it on his head and walk out. Now, the new friend, who was actually Smith Brown's um, accomplice, would then actually say, wait a minute, we'll have one more bet. He'd say, I've got a checkbook here, I'll, I'll write out a check. He'd fill out a check to cover his buddy's, um, the, the intended victim's next bet, and they'd lose that too. And then Smith Brown would be on his way. The victim would then be going, oh, this is terrible, he'd be in shock. He'd talk to his new friend about it, and his new friend would say, I've got something terrible to tell you, but that check that I actually just gave to him is a fraud. It's a fake. And when he goes to cash it, it's going to come to the attention of the police, and we'll actually, there'll be a warrant out for our arrest for passing a dodgy check. We've got to get out of town. And he'd buy the victim um, a ticket. And he'd be um, several stations out of Melbourne on his way to Ballarat or somewhere, and suddenly he'd actually get a chance to think and realise, I've been scammed. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he'd go and see the police. That is a very long and complicated trick, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And he's managed to pull this trick off again and again and again without getting caught? That's, well, mostly. Um, I mean, most, most people would be too embarrassed to go and tell the police about it, really. And a lot of people would actually get through that and actually think that they'd lost to a fair game and it was just their most unlucky day ever. Most of the times that he actually got caught for it was when a detective was walking past and saw the game in operation and, um, and went and tipped the person off that was being scammed that this guy's actually a con artist. But um, he didn't go through life without being convicted. He had, he had 12 terms of imprisonment through his life. And just going back, do you know what, what was the signal to say whether it was heads or tails? Was it a cough, for example? Um, it, it varied um, between what groups were communicating with each other, but but mostly it was a, a scratch of the eyebrow for heads and just a, a tap of a button lower down the shirt for tails. Now, Smith Brown had quite a weakness for drink, didn't he? And that, and that often proved to be his undoing. Yeah, so so most most of the times that he actually found himself in prison was when he made, when he messed up um, in a drunken situation. We actually go back to eighteen eighty one, where there was a quite quite a comical bender that he went on. He went to the uh, hotel that used to be called the Nugget Hotel on Bouveret Street in Carlton and he started drinking with the, the licensee, so the owner of the hotel, and they had a, a long drinking session together that went all night. So he must have closed the hotel up and they kept going, but he kept charging Smith Brown for his drinks and Smith Brown ran out of money and handed over his gold watch to pay for some more drink. Um, we get through to the early hours of the morning and the, the money um, from the gold watch, watches are run out. The pub's reopened. He's gone down to a pawn shop in downtown Melbourne and he sold off um, his wife's diamond ring. And that's kept him going for a while. He's still drinking. That's run out as well. And then he said to the girl working behind the bar, he said, um, listen, I've got some lovely cedar chairs at home, which are horsehair cedar, very expensive chairs. Um, you wouldn't be interested in buying some, would you? And she said, well, I'm moving into a new house, actually. Yes, I, at the right price, I'd purchase them. So he's gone all the way home and he's carted back two chairs and she's bought them off him. He's drunk that. That money's run out. So he's gone home and got the other two chairs. So she's got the whole the full set. She borrowed some money off one of the barmen in the place and bought it. That money's run out. 
his mate on his way home and he's busted by the cops for trying to steal a doormat off somebody's door. I'm not sure whether he was hoping that would get him another couple of pints or what <laughs> or not. But um... <laughs> <laughs> Did he remain in Melbourne his whole life? We get through to about 1887 and he relocated to, to Sydney. And up in Sydney, he, he continued to do the heart-shaped box trick. That was the main thing that he did. And we're getting through to the 1890s and he's in his 70s by this point of time. And he's actually training all the young guys, like the next group of people coming through to take his place. In 1897, he got sent to prison for three months for vagrancy. He had a lot of near misses where he was almost caught for getting people with a heart-shaped box trick, but it seemed like his mind was still together and he was still at the height of his game. But that sentence in 1897, that was the end of him. He never really made it out. That year he was actually sent off to a lunatic asylum after being diagnosed with senile debility and he ended up passing away in the asylum in 1901 at the age of 80. 80. What an incredible age at that time after that life. Yeah. So um, the thing that I find so intriguing about him was that he was able to convince people that he was a, um, a wealthy gentleman, even though one description in the newspaper was that his nose had been knocked out of the straight line. So this big bent nose, we'll be able to see that in the photograph attached to um, this podcast and to the article that goes along with it. But other, other descriptions were that he was a venerable-looking gentleman, uh, gentleman dressed in a tall silk hat, frock coat, etc., and with a silvery beard to the bottom of his vest. So how would you sum up his life? Well, he, he came, came to Australia against his wishes, and I don't think he really ever respected the people that were around him that much. He thought they were fools. He treated them, treated them like fools, and I guess they proved themselves to be fools, to... Um, believe the ridiculous stories that he told them and um, I guess a, a fool and their money are easily parted as they used to say and um, um, I, I guess he might have even thought he was teaching them a lesson in some instances but he led a, a very interesting life. Thanks again for coming and sharing another really entertaining story Michael. Thanks for having me. And if you want to learn more you'll find a link to a story and photos in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Australia's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, produced by John T. Burton and Al Tynan, and edited by Andrea Tees-Evanson. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to give it a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, leave a review. Or if you have questions or comments, please let me know by email at inblackandwhite at heraldsun.com.au. Any clarifications or updates to the stories will appear in the show notes for each episode. And to get notified when each new episode comes out, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. Thank you. 
Hey, I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component oh, of that. I, I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts.